When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Julia Turner, and this is the Slate Culture Gabfest mm, Simpsons edition. It's Wednesday, August 27th, 2014, and on today's program, we're going to talk about the Simpsons Marathon on FXX. 552 episodes, 278 hours, and more than 20 years worth of one yellow family shaping American comedy and culture. And then the indie film, The One I Love, is a surreal romance that feels like a Twilight Zone episode. Is the relationship movie finally getting a reboot? And finally, yes, it's coming to the Slate Culture Gab Fest. The Ice Bucket Challenge has raised millions of dollars for ALS research. What happens when charitable giving goes viral? Joining me today is Slate's deputy editor, John Swansburg. Hi, John. Hey, Julia. And Slate senior editor, David Hagland. Hi, David. Hi, Julia. Nice to have you on the show. My normal compatriots have uh, abandoned me for sunnier, sandier climbs, um, but I'm very happy to have you guys here in studio. Before we launch into our first topic, I also want to tell listeners about Slate Plus. This is our membership program, which has lots of cool benefits, including bonus segments for Plus listeners. Today, we're going to grill Hagland about the pop culture and high culture and low culture that he's most excited about this fall, the stuff that he personally can't wait to get his hands on and the stuff that the site is going to go big on. Um, But another perk is early access to live event tickets. We have a series of super exciting live shows coming up this fall all around the country. David Plotz was teasing these on the Politics Fest last week. We're going to do a joint live show, politics and culture, in San Francisco on October 5th. Culture is going to be doing a show on October 8th in Los Angeles. We also have some other dates coming up in Chicago, New York, and Boston for the various shows uh, later on in the fall. If you sign up for Slate Plus now for 5 bucks a month or 50 bucks a year, you'll be the first to hear about those shows, and you'll have access to buy tickets before anyone else. So find out more and sign up at slate.com slash culture plus. All right, David, I can't wait to hear what you have to say. But first, on to our topics. Of all things, summer 2014 has become the moment of The Simpsons. This is in largely because of a marketing and syndication deal that the relatively new cable network FXX has created. It has bought the first-only cable syndication rights to The Simpsons, and it's kicking off this massive deal and shift in its strategy with a gigantic Simpsons marathon. And the Simpsons marathon has been the occasion for sites all over the internet and readers and viewers everywhere to reconnect with the Yellow family that they know and love uh, and to opine about the importance, significance, quality, and legacy of the Simpsons. So we thought we would chime in. But one thing that has been interesting as we all prep for this episode and tried to grapple with the gigantic yellow blob that is Simpsoniana is that actually there's not a ton of great critical writing out there about The Simpsons. There is something about The Simpsons that is so sprawling, so massive, so unpindownable that it seems at times to be credited with creating the entire comic universe and cultural universe that we live in or being almost so singular that it has touched or changed nothing at all. And it's a little bit hard to figure out where we come down. So I'm just going to grill you guys straight up. 
Has The Simpsons changed everything, John, or changed nothing? <laughs> <laughs> Gee, thanks, Julia, for that for that softball opener. Um, I tend to think that it's changed a lot of things, but I do agree it's it's hard it's a it's a hard thing to to pin down, and it's hard to sort of figure out exactly what its what its influence is. But I think it's changed things both sort of uh, minor and major, and some of the minor things actually are probably more major when you start to think about them. Uh, I think one piece that we all read uh, was a great profile from I think back in two thousand of George. Meyer, uh, one of the executive producers of the show that was for, written for The New Yorker by David Owen. And one of the small things that he points out is that uh, one of the revolutionary things that The Simpsons did was do away with the both, obviously, the live studio audience, this being animation, but also the laugh track. And uh, that seems like a minor thing to us now, particularly given the rise of shows like The Office and sort of mockumentaries that have also, you know, uh, done great work without a, a laugh track. But that's that was a, a kind of crazy stroke at the time in 1989 to not cue up laughter for an audience. Um, and now that's like a very common move in, in TV comedy that probably was unthinkable in 1988. Um, so I think when you start to sort of pinpoint little things like that, you realize, wow, like a lot of what we watch now on TV probably did find its roots in The Simpsons. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that struck me reading that George Meyer uh, profile and a lot of the other things that we read this week is that The Simpsons itself feels like an accumulation. I mean, its perfection is an accumulation of lots of little things that added up to this one great thing. So, for instance, not having a laugh track. One thing I don't know that I realized before is that they work basically year-round on the show, unlike a a live show where you bring the actors together and, and work on it for several months and then take the summer off. They're just working constantly and they're rewriting the script constantly and I think just that sheer effort had a lot to do with how good it was they brought together a bunch of great writers so not just one person right and that's another thing that I think uh, makes it hard to find a point of entry for the show is there's not, you know, Matthew Weiner, there's not David Simon, there's not the one person you can point to and say that's the genius behind The Simpsons. I think the George Meyer profile almost tried to say that George Meyer was the guy, but clearly it's not just him. It's Sam Simon, it's John Swartzwelder, it's James L. Brooks, and so on. Right. Matt Groening, obviously. So, you know, then in addition to dropping the laugh track, you have the freedom that comes with animation just in general, just the kinds of, you know, create a new character, have Hank Azaria do a different voice, and have that person go anywhere in the world you want them to go, because the budget is not an issue. So all of those things kind of came together in this way to create this perfect show, but I'm not sure there's one thing you can point to and say, that's the genius of The Simpsons. Yeah, I think if we were to point to, like, what are the key big comedic legacies that that people argue The Simpsons may be responsible for? So one are some of these points you've cited about form, the, the notion that animation could be an adult format, the notion that we don't need a laugh track to prompt us when to laugh. I mean, almost the notion that the audience is a grown-up, I think, is something that certainly was true of The Simpsons. I'm not sure if The Simpsons can be credited to have invented it, but maybe assuming a certain level of grown-up attitude for an animated show was novel. I think certainly referential comedy. I mean, one of the things that The Simpsons has been and has become more so over the years is just packed with in- an incredible density of allusions to a whole body of knowledge about American political history, American cultural history, like global politics, geography. I mean, they'll just drop things in assuming that you have an encyclopedia in your brain, you know, which in 1989, not everybody even had that like click up on their phone on the couch the way we do today. So there's an assumption of learnedness in the viewer that is maybe not necessarily associated with primetime sitcom 
ethos. Then there's joke density, right? The sheer number of jokes per minute, like the the RPM of of the comedy is just frenetic and frantic and I think felt bracing compared to sort of like set up, set up, set up, punchline, laugh track, set up, set up, set up, punchline, laugh track. This is just joke, 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 joke. I mean, they couldn't have even put the laugh tracks in because it would have made the shows like 20 minutes longer given how many jokes there were in it. And you almost wonder if it was like a practical choice rather than a strategic one. Right. The laugh track would have drowned out some of those like tertiary and fourth and fifth jokes that follow on the first and second jokes in a traditional sitcom. Right. And for any of those threads, you can go back and point to other things in American history, that American cultural history and television history that had some of those aspects. You know, a, a great piece, I think, that A.O. Scott wrote about The Simpsons in the early 2000s, which we also read, you know, points to the fact that The Flintstones actually was an evening primetime cartoon. I had no idea that was true. It's hard to imagine what the cultural conversation was around the Flintstones, but <laughs> you know, it's hard to really credit specific first the the kind of knowingness of the comedy. There was also Larry Sanders show. I mean, it's not that they were the first of anything specific. It's that they kind of alchemized and amalgamated a bunch of trends at a particular moment that really resonated. You know, I think there's also something funny about where it's situated, which is that people point to it now as the progenitor of, you know, modern, ironic, referential culture, almost a postmodern mix-it-up kind of refer to things high and low and unexpected type of comedy, which is prevalent. But there's also something very earnest, very anti-capitalist, very like fuck the man about it that feels almost like it comes out of the tail end of boomer culture. And it straddles those two in a way that I think may point to something about its staying power. Well, and there is a conservatism in the show, at least in its earlier years, where the family unit stays intact. And there are lessons at the end. It's not Seinfeld, right? There are often these heartwarming moments. It's a very sweet show uh, in its early years, which makes you know some of the initial responses to it you know, ironic in hindsight, people thought that it was this horrible, crass thing that was, you know, debasing American culture or something. That was one element of the response. There's the famous George H.W. Bush quote about we should be more like the Waltons and less like the Simpsons. <laughs> but in fact, the Simpsons were this nuclear family, a, a, you know, a joke they make much of. And those early episodes really hewed to, a, in some ways, traditional sitcom format where you cared about the characters, you cared about the family, you wanted them to to grow in some ways. Obviously they don't age and yet the characters do grow. And the other thing that struck me watching some of these older episodes again is to my mind, the very best episodes are almost all about a single character. They focus on a character. Uh, my favorite episode of all time is Bart Sells a Soul, which is kind of about the deepening of a character and how we feel depth in ourselves. But also Lisa the Vegetarian is a great episode. Um, the Rosebud episode about Monty Burns' relationship to Bobo the Bear, the teddy bear he had, <laughs> is all about him. I mean, all of them seem to take this character that you had gotten to know and and take them a little bit further. And somehow that – I mean, that's a very traditional uh, thing to do in narrative art to, to try to – create a complex character and that's part of what made the show so good dude yeah, <laughs> I wait I totally disagree with you that the characters grow but John make your point and then, <laughs> no, and then you, my outrage will spill I was, forth I was merely going to uh, say I agree completely with David and uh, throw my favorite episode into the mix which fits into that pattern mine being uh, The Last Temptation of Homer which is an episode where 
uh, a new uh, woman shows up at the uh, nuclear power plant who's like Homer's dream girl. She loves donuts. Uh, she loves, you know, sitting the, on her butt and watching TV. And he has like ev- like a million kind of comical opportunities to have an affair with her. And she's really into him. But ultimately, Homer uh, rejects her and sort of swings back towards Marge. And the whole episode is about this temptation. But in the end, he, he comes back to the family, reaffirms his love for Marge. And there's a wonderful scene of them reuniting in uh, capital city and uh, sleeping with one another and eating turkey. <laughs> I These individual episodes are good. I just watched Bart sell his soul last night, and it is true that in that moment of that episode, you feel that Bart has learned and grown. But th- it's not as though whatever happened in that episode then materializes deep in Bart's soul behind his eyes in the subsequent episode. Like the thing... All right, I have a confession to make here, which is I respect The Simpsons... I admire The Simpsons. I marvel at the wonderfulness of The Simpsons. I'm never, like, in the mood to watch The Simpsons. I'm never like, you know what I could go for tonight? Some Simpsons. Like, I just need to sit down with Bart and Co. I've never had that relationship to the show. I didn't really watch it growing up. I've been steeped in it. I've had friends who are obsessed with it. Probably half the dialogue of my marriage is Simpsons quotes that I'm not even getting because my husband is so obsessed with The Simpsons. Like, so I I owe it a lot in many ways, I'm sure. But I don't love it. It's not like what I want to tune into. And I think it's because of that feeling that it's disposable. First of all, there's so much of it. I mean, there's just like an endless spigot of Simpsons. You can just turn on and off at any moment. And, you know, the, the marathon makes a fun event out of that. But it, if you haven't dipped in, you don't feel like, you know what, someday I'm going to really catch up on The Simpsons. Like, no, I'm, I will never watch them all. I'm not going to. I'm fine with that. But I, for me, as much as I like the show better than I would if the characters had no heart at all and we never got to dip into how they were feeling or growing, I don't believe any of that growth because it just feels, it all feels hypothetical. Like Each episode feels like an alternate possible day in Springfield, but none of them feel like actual real days in Springfield. And so I I don't know. I just can't, I can't care in the way that I do about other characters. But so like comparing it to 30 Rock, which I think is a show you do find yourself in the mood for, do you feel like the Tracy Morgan character, the Tina Fey character grows in any meaningful way from episode to episode in that show? Yeah. Really? I do. I feel like the relationships among those characters, like the relationship between Liz and Jack at the beginning of season one and the relationship between Liz and Jack at the end of season seven or however many seasons they got, five, whatever it was, evolved. And it didn't evolve in the ways you expected. There was never like a clinch. You know, it wasn't like a classic, stupid sitcom, Sam and Diane romance that finally came true or whatever. But they had a, a dynamic that that changed. And it was a ridiculous dynamic that took place in a world that couldn't exist without The Simpsons. Like the, everything about that show, the joke density, the absurdity, the kind of anti-corporate GE bashing at a show aired by NBC, like everything about it is Simpsonian. But there was something that felt realer about that world to me. Like it, each day wasn't a hypothetical alternate day. Things happened in succession. There was progress, even though the progress was strained. I don't know why I care about that. But for me, that's one of the things that makes The Simpsons so amazing, but harder to care about. But this clearly didn't apply to you guys. I mean, what's your story? Were you just like, did you just like grow up wolfing down Simpsons episodes? Completely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing about rewatching them during the marathon. I've basically just been kind of dropping in here and there. Just if I have a spare moment when I'm home, I thought, oh, I'll I'll turn on FXX and, and watch some more and see which episodes are on now. I know them all so well 
that it's it's enjoyable to watch them again. But I I also don't really feel the need to revisit them. But mostly I think because I fully ingested them when I was a kid, <laughs> and I and I don't need to again. But I certainly enjoy them, and I I do not uh, see that contrast with Thirty Rock, which is a show that I also enjoy. I wonder if partly you relate to the relationship between um, Tina Fey and Alec Baldwin's characters because it's their creative people working in the media, in, in, the media <laughs> working in media, right? I mean, I do. Think, I have a family, David. <laughs> <laughs> I grew up with a family. I think you know. Again, in terms of what the the show was doing and where it came from, one of the other contexts that people put it in when it started was the context of Roseanne and Married with Children. It was seen as you know this is a basically working class or working middle class family. Um, you know, Lisa sticks out because she's the smart one and, and she's going to go to college someday. And, and that makes her different from from her parents. So I think that, you know, it, it shows a specific milieu, but there are relationships like Homer's with Flanders that, yes, they they hit the same beats again and again and after a while. But one of the episodes I rewatched was the one where they become friends and they make a joke about how they're not going to be friends the next week. It's actually the weakest Part of the episode. I think when the show gets overly meta, it often falters. Um, but actually, their relationship did accumulate and complicate over time because you remembered those things, and sometimes the show would sort of harken back to them in different ways. Right, and I think the characters did evolve, although it's not necessarily in the way that you're describing, Julia. Like, it's not that Homer learns a lesson in episode 321 that, you know, you then see that applied in episode 426. But if you know, I mean, part of the what's interesting about the show is just the, the sheer craziness of how long it's been running. And if you, like you, David, I've been kind of tuning in piecemeal. And if you catch an episode from season two, and then you're off for a few days, and you catch an episode from season nine, Homer is very different. It's not that he's learned lessons from, you know, having his head exploded, uh, or, you know, dr- drunk driving, or, you know, being shot by Barney, whatever it is. Um, it's more that like the, the writer's room has evolved, the people who are making the show has changed. The show itself has changed. I mean, as a lot of people have pointed out in the beginning, The Simpsons was a much more um, conventional show. It was a show really about Bart uh, when it began. And Homer was sort of more like a a stern uh, kind of old school cookie cutter dad who was kind of always yelling at his son to behave. And the show eventually became about Homer. And then there was kind of, I think, a golden era to my mind, and probably around the uh, fifth, sixth uh, season uh, moment when the show was really about Homer, and there were a lot of episodes, I think, like the ones that we cited, David, as our favorites, although that may be just a function of when we came of age as viewers, um, where Homer was at once uh, kind of like a bumbling idiot and comical in that way, but also a really soulful guy who was trying to figure out his way in the world and how to be a good father and husband. Later, he becomes, I think, so buffoonish that for my taste, it becomes le- like a, a less arresting character. But those are all different homers. That's like there's three, at least three different homers in the course of the ser- uh, series run. And I'm sure a bigger fan than I would be able to identify like, you know, probably 17 sub homers. Yeah. But I, here's, here's another question for us to consider. Do we think that The Simpsons is a timeless classic and that the furor and wild rating success over the FXX launch of syndication suggests an endless hunger for Simpsoniana? Or... Uh, is it simply that our generation, which grew up on The Simpsons, is now uh, a set of ascendant media bosses and uh, we're just writing all the time about this show of our childhood that we care a lot about, but in fact, future generations won't give a damn? I do think that there's some danger, and this is something that struck me in watching some of the earlier episodes uh, for prepping for this segment, 
uh, that some of the uh, references will be lost on a future generation. I mean, there's a certain way in which you, you can watch an episode and feel the way that I feel. I used to go um, to Maine every summer around this time, and I'd always play Trivial Pursuit um, with someone from my parents' generation. And we would play, like, Genus 4, which was, I think, an edition that came out in, like, 1980. And I was, like, pretty competitive in every category, but then it would come to arts and entertainment. Oh, fucking pink. Oh, pink was pink. the worst. It was the worst. It'd be like, the, you know, like, <laughs> this screwball comedy from 1941. It's like, you don't, if you are not steeped in the pop culture of another era, you are completely screwed when the pink cards come up. And, I, you know, I was watching Flaming Mo, which I remember being one of my favorite episodes from early on I think it's season three one of the first Mo episodes and like there are long sequences that are like kind of subtle riffs on like Cheers and Phantom of the Opera and I mean maybe those things are indelible cultural products enough that like my kids 15 years from now will be like oh yeah that's a Cheers reference but I don't know maybe they won't like I think that there's a lot of the humor will be lost but I think the great episodes are so good on their own terms and that the references are kind of icing on the cake that I still think that they would work. Like certainly like the Rosebud one, you kind of do need to know that it's uh, sending up Citizen Kane, but not really. It's really about an old man's love of his missing teddy bear and it kind of works. Right. Also, I mean, I have faith that people are going to get the Citizen Kane reference 100 years from now. Right. Whereas... So it will still work. <laughs> and that's partly why I think the show will continue to work because it did draw in such a such a range of references. Some of them will become more obscure than they are, but other Others will persist. And I think especially – and granted, I haven't really kept up with the show for the last several years. But in its heyday, which to my mind is starts around season two or three and goes up to about eight or nine or so. And there are you know, good episodes on either end of that. But, but that heart of the series – to me, does feel mostly timeless. In fact, one of the ways I think the show got weaker over the years is it became more topical, and they started sending up specific things, specific moments. And they had mostly avoided that in in the earlier episodes. And I think that people will be able to go back to them. And I wonder if part of the reason the 14, 15-year-olds don't care about it is because they're watching the new episodes. You know, if they're turning on the TV on Sunday night when Family Guy's on and Simpsons is on too, and it's just not as good as it used to be. Yeah, they've I, definitely had the good stuff pressed <laughs> on them. Sorry, guys, that explanation won't, won't cut it. They just have bad taste. Um, <laughs> probably. All right. Um, well, the show is The Simpsons. If you're unfamiliar with it, it sounds like you should check out episodes from seasons three to nine. Uh, you will have ample opportunity to do so on FXX uh, in years to come. Listeners, tell us what your favorite Simpsons episodes are and whether there are any other fellow Simpsons. Um, I'm not a doubter. I'm just <laughs> I'm just not in the camp. Never in the mooder. I'm not, never in the mooder. Um, let us know on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Watching the independent movie The One I Love is a bit like watching a romance in the Twilight Zone. It stars Elizabeth Moss and Mark Duplass as a couple trying to rekindle their foundering marriage. At the behest of their therapist, they head off to a house in the woods with a cozy guest cottage. It's there where they start facing themselves and their relationship. One note for our listeners before we get too far into this segment. There is a fundamental premise of this movie, which we are going to spoil. If you have seen the trailer of this movie, it will basically already be spoiled for you. We are not, however, going to spoil the end of the movie and what happens based on the premise. So if you want to know nothing at all about the film, um, you can go click it up on your computer right now. It's on demand and, and watch it and then come back and listen to the rest of this podcast. But I think if you've seen any marketing for the movie, we're not going to reveal more than you would have encountered there. David, do you want to... Tell us what you thought of the film and, and spoil the preliminaries while you're at it. Sure. So when they they get to this this weekend getaway, there's something strange about this guest house. There are versions of themselves that they encounter there. 
And that throws back on them what they're already wrestling with, which is what do we want out of this marriage? What do I want out of my partner? Do I still love this person? And so on. And I really enjoyed it. Elizabeth Moss, I think, is a terrific actress. And we already knew that from watching Mad Men. My fandom goes back to her West Wing days. But it was fun to see her really good in a movie because sometimes that transition is difficult. And and who knows what lies ahead for her. But this was very encouraging. I thought she carried this movie. I like Mark Duplass. He's solid. He's good. He's funny. But, you know, it would have uh, fallen apart, I think, without someone as good as, as she is. It's you know, we ran a piece in Slate by Aisha Harris, which put this movie in the context of romantic comedies and suggested this was a reinvention of the form. I think it's something different. It's uh, it's not a hilarious movie, but it also doesn't quite hit the beats of even an unconventional romantic comedy like, say, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind or Groundhog Day. Uh, it's something a little bit different. I think it's it's more about marriage. It's about relationships, but it's not necessarily about either coming together or coming back together. Yeah, I think it's I think it is more like a Twilight Zone episode in, in a way. Obviously it's longer, it's 90 minutes. Um but this kind of essential uh almost existential mystery at the center of like who are these doubles uh that these that this couple encounters is a really big part of the of the movie and it doesn't have any of the traditional beats um of the romantic comedy as you as you said. And for me a big part of the pleasure and I and I really enjoyed the movie was um the questions that were posed by this in the sort of second act of the movie by the the existence of these doubles. And and in part I think one of the most interesting questions the movie raises is who are these doubles? Because it's not exactly clear. I'm curious what you guys thought. I mean one interpretation is that the the other versions of the uh, male and female characters, Ethan and Sophie, is that it's it's essentially the version of themselves they were when the couple started dating. There's like that moment, you know, when you first uh, become romantically involved with someone and it's kind of like that honeymoon phase where the person can do no wrong. They feel like this kind of idealized version. You laugh at their jokes. Um, the person doesn't seem to go to the bathroom ever. Uh, <laughs> you know, like it's just like that great kind of golden uh, light is falling on uh, both, both parts. So one interpretation is that they are seeing that kind of version that they remember from the uh, beginning of their relationship. Another slightly different, but I think importantly different idea is that it's the idealized version of the other person in the couple. That it's not necessarily even the person that they were. It's the person that they that Sophie wishes Ethan was. So it's the person that Ethan wishes Sophie was. Um, and that distinction, I think, is is not uh, ever really clarified in a way that I found very fun. And I kept like adjusting my own. Uh, experience of the movie according to what I thought was going on. But I, it, until the movie started clarifying what was going on, I was really wrapped by it. I was less wrapped when it started explaining itself a little bit more. Yeah. I mean, it just as a as a taut little psychological head game about the dynamics of a relationship, it was totally fascinating. It was a great, tight little gimmick. It had kind of the beautiful, it's in this, I think it's in Ojai. It's on some gorgeous estate and it's like dappled with coastal California light and abundant orange trees and has all the kind of great classic California noir sinister sunshine vibe going on. And you just, you know, you care about this relationship, I think, in large part because of actually the acting of both of them. Um, it's tough. It's a tough role. I mean, basically, it's the, those two actors are on screen the entire movie. No one else. Ted Danson's on, in the movie for like two minutes. Right? Yeah. And they they play these slightly modulated versions of themselves, you know, very distinctly. The character played by Mark Duplass has more distinct tells. And the characters Elizabeth Moss plays, the two Sophies are a little bit 
murkier um, and and harder. Her, her the distinction she draws between the two is is more finely wrought. But both of them, they're both quite unlikable. I think Ethan and Sophie, they're quite unlikable, and their relationship seems totally fucked. And you still kind of care about it, and you're still kind of rooting for it, and you still kind of want them to make it work. It it just plays on your expectations of a cinematic romance in ways that use the sci-fi-ishness of it or the, the kind of fantastical mystery of it for real emotional heft. And I'm just so unused to that. I mean, I think you see so many movies where fantasy or sci-fi is just a gimmick for scares and thrills as opposed to something that tries to get at something more interesting that you can relate to in your normal life. Um, and it plays with its own gimmick in ways that I found surprising. So Sophie kind of falls in love with her idealized Ethan in a way that you might expect because it's the ideal version of Ethan. And I, I guess I expected then for Ethan to fall in love with his idealized Sophie that he finds in the guest house. But that's actually not what happens. Sophie loves the ideal Ethan. Ethan is actually more caught up in being jealous of Sophie's relationship with the ideal Ethan than he is. He's kind of uninterested in the ideal Sophie who, like, makes him his favorite breakfast and is completely compliant and is sort of like a Stepford wife. Uh, he has almost no – he's sort of interested in figuring out the mystery of where she came from and whether she's a ghost or a robot or something. But he's not – doesn't have a real emotional connection with her. It's all about his jealousy. Like for him, it's all about jealousy of Sophie. And for Sophie, it's all about connecting with this guy who has all the good aspects of Ethan and none of the bad, the stuff that she's come to uh, find sort of distasteful about him, which I thought was a a kind of fun, unexpected way to take this conceit. It wasn't even the, you know, it's a surprising conceit. And then they did something surprising with the conceit. Yeah. I also thought it was fun to see Elizabeth Moss play a grown-up present-day woman. I mean, I also saw her play the president's daughter on West Wing, and doesn't she get, like, abducted at one point? Yes. Very dramatic. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, she's she's had various roles. But there's a way that her character on Mad Men, that Peggy Olsen comes across, where she's got that inner steel, and she can be a real piece of work. Like, she can be really mean to those around her or selfish or just kind of blinkered in her understanding of how her behavior is coming off. She has like a fierceness and a a willfulness and a misguided strength that she doesn't always put to the right purposes that in the period context feels so bound up with the gender roles of the time and the different possible ways to be a woman or express that womanhood. And seeing her use those same muscles of just like ferociousness and almost cruel sort of a steely cruelty and a knowing of her own mind in a modern context where the the trappings of like what you expect from her as a woman fall away a little bit is just interesting like I found myself sort of impressed by like what a stone cold bitch she is (laughs) several times (laughs) in the movie while also having a lot of warmth and and you know relatability and and being very sympathetic to her frustrations with their relationship but she's just that vein of steel in her as an actress was deployed to like a really surprising and interesting effect i thought i'm curious what you guys i mean i know we're not we don't want to talk about the ending ending because uh, there are several more sort of zigs and zags in the movie but i'm curious what your what the takeaway for you guys was of this movie like is it saying what is it saying about romance is it saying that uh, sustained uh, happiness is impossible between men and women? Is it saying that it's, you know, the, the important part of a relationship is realizing that that is a, that that sort of honeymoon phase is just that a phase and you need to uh, reckon with it? I, I don't know that the movie has a, an obvious uh, takeaway. Uh, and I don't know that I've sorted out what I think it's about, but I'm curious if you guys felt like it, it did have a, you could argue for a message. Well, to my mind, that was without getting 
into those spoilers something of a shortcoming of the movie, uh, I, you know, contrasting it with something like Eternal Sunshine and the Spotless Mind. That movie, I feel like, reaches a, a point uh, at the end where you do feel like you have learned something or you have experienced something about relationships and, and where they can go and not just what happens in them. I, I think this movie, to my mind, gets a little bit mired in what happens to relationships. It doesn't quite get to anywhere beyond that. And it kind of felt as though, you know, so Mark Duplass, in addition to starring in the movie as one of the producers, I don't know if in this case that involved working on the script at all. Uh, but the Duplass brothers, they made Jeff Who Lives at Home, they made Cyrus, uh, they made some smaller movies like Baghead, I think is what it's called, and a couple others, The Puffy Chair. Anyway, their movies, I always enjoy them, but they sometimes feel as though the two of them have had this conceit, which is fun and which sets up interesting drama and then they kind of wing it. I'm not, you know, it doesn't feel like they have, you know, sort of resolved this sort of dramatic idea in their heads quite. They think about where would it be fun for this to go? Well, what if we went this way? What if we went that way? And then they go there. And so they often, to me, feel a little bit, a little bit unsatisfying in their, in their resolutions, even though I often enjoy them quite a bit while I'm watching them. Yeah, that's the way I felt. Yeah, the, with, again, without spoiling, the conclusion of the movie sort of short circuits the eternal this could happen in any relationship themes with the specificity of whatever the hell is going on and so it ends up just being kind of like a dark bitter little comedy about this particular couple and what ends up happening to them which doesn't mean that you shouldn't watch it because I think some of the scenes are just incredibly funny including at first they can't seem to all be together but um as the rules of the world begin to get broken and a little bit more loose and fuzzy, there's just some super tour de force confrontations, including I think my favorite. Well, I won't spoil it. There's some great, conf- <laughs> great confrontations between versions of the characters, um, and I, I would hardly recommend it. Would you guys? Yeah, certainly. I mean, I think uh, especially because it's so easy to watch. I mean, I think all of us probably watched it on video on demand. I like clicked, you know, buy it now on um, Amazon and was on my TV that next second. And it's a tight 90 minutes. Like it was a very frictionless transaction. Like, you know, if if I had to go to the movie theater, I think I would. If I, you know, knowing how much I enjoyed it, um, I can say you should go to the theater to see it. But it's even that much more imperative for you to see it since you can do it almost without getting up off your couch. Yeah, I watched it before, uh, you know, not for the segment. I I, uh, went to Obvious Child on a Friday. There was a trailer for The One I Love, and I remembered that it was available on demand, and so I leaned over to my girlfriend and said, let's watch that tomorrow. And so that's what we did. We just, you know, called it up on Amazon. I I do think I found it. I'm going to sound like a Philistine, perhaps, by saying this. But, you know, we have a, a fairly sizable television that is the same aspect ratio as most uh, HD televisions these days. And the movie was shot in w- a widescreen format. Uh, so it's, it's letterbox on the screen, which I generally don't mind. But I think filmmakers need to start thinking maybe more than they are about what format they're actually making their movies for. Um, and this is a movie, it's not Lawrence of Arabia. I think it could have been shot <laughs> in the, you know, ratio that would fit a TV screen, which is how, you know, a lot of people, and I understand the filmmaker may have his own interests in, you know, that form and that shape and what have you. But I do think that this is where a lot of filmmaking is headed. And I don't have a problem with that. I really enjoyed watching it that way. TV screens are getting bigger. 
I like that the Duplass brothers and their ilk are able to work in this more modest form that allows them the freedom to do what they want to do and not be hemmed in by by studios which seem less and less interested in this kind of movie. Uh, so I liked that and I and I enjoyed it. But I but I do hope that that filmmakers are, are out there are thinking about delivery systems and and where they fit into this kind of evolving you know cinematic ecosystem. Do we feel? I mean, overall, are the economics of this good? for filmmakers? Do we think that this movie exists because people are like, oh, people might watch it on streaming? Like, it feels like that is a fine supplemental revenue stream. Like, it probably helps people who live in places that don't, you know, that aren't the, like, six towns that get these movies. And so, from that perspective, all the revenue is supplementary. On the other hand, I'm not going to go pay, you know, $14 to the Angelica or wherever the heck this thing is playing, because I did pay seven ninety nine to Google Play, I think. <laughs> I think it's good. I mean, I, I do like the freedom that they seem to have and the ability to make these these smaller movies. And, you know, so far the economics of it are not very transparent. And so it's hard to know what the success stories are when it comes to on-demand. But it does seem like they're, you know, you, you get comments and in interviews about, so for instance, I think we talked about Drinking Buddies on an episode of The Gap Fest. And that's a movie that also came out on demand either right when it was coming out or maybe before it hit theaters. And from what I understand, that movie did well on demand and people found it who probably wouldn't have found it otherwise. It might not have come to their town because movies have such a hard time getting a really wide uh, distribution. And I'm glad that, that movies like that are getting made and you know they're made generally cheaply enough so you don't need to reap in you know huge revenues at the box office to to succeed there's an interesting interview with mark duplass with i think mike ryan i forget what site he did it for but where they he gets into how to survive as as a filmmaker at this level and they're very practical you know how to control your costs and, and you know don't don't swing you know, too hard. And then that means you're not going to make, you know, the master, you're not going to be Paul Thomas Anderson, but you can still make a movie like this, which is really good, I think. And also, I just think as as viewers, or at least for me as a viewer, I'm just much more likely to take a, a flyer on a movie like this, given that it's available, that I don't have to leave my house, I don't have to pay, you know, twice what I would uh, have to pay on Amazon to go to a theater. Um, you know, it's a, it's a movie with actors who I like, I've, there's a bit of buzz around it that it's good. But this is exactly the kind of movie that if I wasn't doing it for the Gab Fest, I don't know that I would actually motivate myself to go to a movie theater. I have a lot of other demands in my time. There are a lot of other big movies that I want to see that I'm behind on from the summer. This is a movie that could very easily pass me by and that I forget about. But the ability to just crank it out on, my, on Amazon on a Tuesday evening is like it's pretty great. And it made it, you know, it brought it into my life in a way that I'm not sure it would have come into my life if, if, it, weren't, uh, if it weren't available in that medium. All right. Well, it sounds like we endorse streaming good movies, and we endorse this particular movie. It's called The One I Love with Elizabeth Moss and Mark Duplass. You can click it up on Google Play, Amazon, and probably various other services you are aware of and privy to. So check it out. All right. Our final topic for the day. Get ready. The big bucket of cold, icy water is coming towards the Gab Fest. We are discussing the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge. If you have a social media feed and eyes, you have no doubt encountered your friends, your enemies, people you've forgotten from your childhood, and various famous people uh, staring at the camera, you know, if you have it on mute as I do, prattling for a while, saying things that you don't listen to, and then somebody somewhere, themselves, some cute tot, a spouse perched on a chair, douses them in a bucket of ice water, uh, and then money is uh, donated to the ALS Foundation, which supports research uh, to cure ALS. 
and um, various other people are tagged, and then those people go on and do ice bucket challenge videos. To start with, gentlemen, has either of you been tagged or tapped for the ice bucket challenge? And if so, have you complied? Uh, I have not. I have not been. In fact, I first heard about this uh, in late July. The first time I heard anything about the Ice Bucket Challenge was from my brother, who had just been tagged. And he described it to me, and I said, you better not tag me. (laughs) (laughs) Preemptive untagging. And it worked, and he didn't, and no one else has as far as I know. I see. My little sister did it, but she didn't tag me, which is sort of surprising. Were Were you hurt? Uh, yeah, maybe a little. Maybe a little, just a little surprised. But uh, maybe she knows me well enough to know that there's probably no way I would have done it. Yeah. And she, she used her tags on, on uh, better subjects. Yeah. I also have neither been tagged nor done the Ice Bucket Challenge. What do we make of this? The, the conversation around it has been a little befuddled, um, I think, because people are, in general, feel like, why not? ALS is a terrible disease. It seems like funding research for it is probably a good thing. Lots of people are on vacation with their families, having fun outdoors, add some ice and a stunt and a camera to the mix. It adds a little bit of fun for the whole family. You know, this seems like, as viral trends go, a harmless verging towards probably slightly helpful ones. So, you know, who cares? No skin off my back. There have been some folks who have, however, questioned or complicated this tack. You know, Felix Salmon wrote for Slate earlier this week saying that, in fact, if you're trying to support research to prevent disease, that funding a single disease research center is not actually the best idea uh, just because it's not the most efficient way to use resources. And, in fact, this particular disease and the state of the research on it may or may not really benefit from getting such a massive influx of cash at this point. It also afflicts a very small number of people, which this is one of the reasons I think the conversations about the Ice Bucket Challenge get very dicey very quickly because you don't want to – I certainly don't want to suggest that I don't want there to be a cure for ALS. I absolutely wish there was a cure for ALS. But if you – it sort of forces you to think about a hierarchy of diseases. And 12,000 Americans who have it, I mean, that's a relatively small number when you compare it to – you know, a handful of any other, you know, diseases like diabetes or AIDS or, you know, it's just, it seems like if you were to create a totem pole of diseases, which one would not want to do, that would, ALS would be relatively low down on it. Well, and then the other question on it and the other argument or complicating point that people make about this whole challenge is that this is not a disease where awareness helps you. Like awareness of breast cancer, you can go get a mammogram. Awareness of heart health, you can start exercising and eating more healthily. Awareness of, you know, lung cancer, you can stop smoking. Awareness of ALS, you're just like, wow, I really hope nobody I know and love gets ALS. That seems really tough. You know, like you right. can, like if for for the wild marketing success that is the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge, there's not a direct like public health benefit for the, all of the people who see the videos for being aware of it. There's a fundraising benefit to this particular research center, which may in the long term have some benefit for the sufferers, all of which is no doubt great. But um, it feels like a slight maybe misalignment of charitable marketing success story and and subject of that charitable largesse. That said, can we talk a little bit about these videos themselves as a viral internet forum and why we think this has been so successful? Do you have a theory on why this has been just so insanely, hugely successful? I think at the time of this taping, the foundation has raised more than $70 million for ALS research. I mean, that's, that's a lot of money. And to stipulate where the money comes in, because I don't think I did, <laughs> you are supposed to, if you get tagged, you're supposed to pour the ice bucket on your head tag other people to do it within 24 hours and donate to the ALS Foundation. Or if you refuse to take the Ice Bucket Challenge, you're supposed to donate to the ALS 
She was donating a lot more. I mean, the, the version that I first heard about was you are either supposed to do the ice bucket challenge and donate $10. Or you can not do the, you know, not dump ice water and ice usually on your head and donate $100. Right. And, you know, and it's one of the critiques people had, which I think is spurious myself, which is that, you know, in theory, oh, well, so what, basically what you're doing is you're showing that you're too cheap or something. I mean, $100 <laughs> is, a lot, is a lot of money, so I can understand. And I think people have actually done it in a variety of ways. And certainly many of the celebrities, I'm sure, since charitable giving is often transparent, people know how much you've given, probably are giving a lot. I mean, obviously, they've raised something like $70 million now. So so people are, are giving a lot of money. I think that, of course, there's the exhibitionist element, right? You're, you're doing something um, that makes you look good because it's about charity in some slightly nebulous way, depending on how explicitly you make that a part of what you're doing. I also think that it's flexibility or adaptability as an act is key because as it's gone on, people have done so many different things. Amy Schumer dumped clam chowder, I think it was, on her. <laughs> There's, uh, it's, I think, was it the Foo Fighters did some kind of carry homage where they dumped blood on? I haven't actually watched that one. I've just been seeing headlines everywhere. Uh, but so people have have done some kind of clever variation on it that allows them to to make it creative, and I I think that helps as well. Certainly, the fact that it's August and you're dumping cold water on yourself. And people can kind of mold their their particular version around their persona. So my personal favorite, just because I find Tom Cruise so fascinating, is the <laughs> one the one that he did with the director of the next Mission Impossible movie, where Hugh Jackman um, tagged I think not just them, but sort of the whole cast and crew of that movie. But as Tom Cruise explains in the video, they're scattered across three continents. So he and the director, whose name I forget, are going to do it on behalf of all of them. And so then, you know, people who who are presumably crew uh, come and start just dumping bucket after bucket after bucket, <laughs> which just seems sort of classically Tom Cruise that he has to do it more intensely than anybody else and more impressively. Uh, so you can, so you have that that kind of variation allows it to remain semi interesting as it goes on. I think that one-upsmanship also uh, plays out in a different way, when particularly with celebrities, that also has contributed to the virality, which is that. Watching a bunch of the celebrity ones this morning, I noticed that there's a certain kind of like pride that the celebrities seem to take in their ability to get other celebrities to do it. So like if you're Ben Affleck, you can get Matt Damon to do it. If you're Kevin Durant, you can get LeBron James to do it. But then LeBron James tries to get President Obama to do it. You know, it's like they're almost like kind of testing like how powerful they are in the celebrity world. President George uh, Walker Bush challenged Bill Clinton to do it. Like there's there's a way in which the celebrities are saying like, oh, look, I'm being humble. I'm, I'm you know, doing this thing and, and giving to charity. But they're also kind of flexing their muscle a little bit as celebrities. And it is kind of fun to see like which celebrities they choose. And that I think and it does kind of it has the virality built into it in that way. I mean, that I think to me is the real key of it. I think it's all very nice to think that the nation as a whole is motivated by charitable uh, giving. But Basically, to me, the Ice Bucket Challenge seems to have become a very visually satisfying social network for celebrities that we are all privy to. And obviously, celebrities kind of 
are some of them are on Facebook, but that feels sort of corporate. Some of them are on Twitter and have varying degrees of quality there. On Instagram, you can kind of spy on different, you know, Lena Dunham shows you what she thought about the dress she wore to the Emmys, blah, blah. Like, there's plenty of ways that celebrities use social media to communicate with you, their fan or person who's interested enough in their career to be following them. But there are no social networks I know of where you can really see how celebrities interact with each other. And the key to this, I think, is that exact thing where you begin to understand, like, the underlying social web of who tags who and why. And it's not that, you know, sometimes they're in a project together, but sometimes it seems like maybe they really are just friends sort of unexpectedly. And the fact that so many icy and impervious people like Anna Wintour have decided to be goatable on this front and actually participate in these in this sort of ridiculous thing it's like, well, if Anna Winter does it, who are you to say no? <laughs> Judy Greer, you know, and J- Judy Greer's is particularly charming, just because everything Judy Greer does is particularly charming. And then, you know, if, if someone great and just fun and lovable like Judy Greer is going to do it, like, well, you're going to really be some jerk celebrity stick in the mud who refuses the challenge. I mean, it, it just it, it seems to have created this perfect storm of these celebrities now feel like they can't be caught out because other celebrities have done it. For those of them who are attractive and make a living by showing us their bodies and flaunting them, you know, the opportunity to get wet while wearing a revealing T-shirt, sundress or swimsuit doesn't hurt. Um, And then I think also there's the fact of perfect timing, like, you know, it's August. A lot of people are on vacation with their families. Like, I think even if you had some ambivalence, like, I don't want to be goaded into it. Maybe the kids are there, some young cousin who's really excited about it or, you know, thinks you're going to get put in jail if you don't do it. It's like, yeah, just do it. Just do it. Get it over with. Throw the video up there. Like, it's it's just irresistible. So to me, it's that that kind of unprecedented, like, intra-celebrity network part of it that I think has helped it go viral. And then the only other thing I think is the form. The fact that you can watch these on mute it's like a Vine format. Like it's a, it's perfect for Vine or Instagram. Like I'm not someone who watches Instagram videos because they're too annoying. But these you can just kind of – you don't have to – you know what they're saying. They're saying go to ALS and, you know, give money. And also I'm tagging some other people. But it's impossible to find the videos from here. So it doesn't really matter who I tagged. So you just you just watch that water get doused on them. One thing that, about the, the form that – bothers me a little, although I'm also bothered that it bothers me. Uh, I'm curious what you guys think, is that particularly as this thing is taken off, like there's a there's a kind of silliness to it, right? It's like you I mean it's essentially a silly act pouring ice, ice cold water on yourself. And a lot of the videos are very lighthearted and there's a sort of goofiness and it feels like it's sort of, you know, camp prank kind of thing or camp dare. Um, I don't know. There's something that troubles me a little bit about that. I mean, at the end of the day, we are talking about this awful disease that kills people. And there's like a real detachment between the subject of the donation and and this this act and obviously like maybe that's okay uh, because it's raising all this money and at the end of the day that's what matters like if if all this money is going to go towards finding a cure maybe it's not a big deal that people aren't sort of speaking with the appropriate somberness about the dire nature of ALS as a disease and and uh, at the efforts to cure it but I went back this morning and, and read Lou Gehrig's uh, farewell speech uh, and watched the the video clip of it and like that is an incredibly powerful poignant moment that you know it's the, probably the first moment when most Americans ever heard of ALS and watching that besides like some goofy actor like getting ice poured on his head is like it's pretty striking and maybe that should maybe I just like I'm being a again a grouch and, and that shouldn't bother me but it kind of does yeah it doesn't bother me but uh, a slightly more pessimistic part of me does wonder if 
the extent to which ALS is abstract to most of the people who are doing it. Certainly not all. There, there are many people who have participated who, who know someone. In fact, um, you know, in uh, Massachusetts, where happens, which happens to be where all three of us come from, uh, <laughs> there was a, a guy named Peter Frades who, who gets some credit for really kind of kicking it off in this form, although as has been documented on Slate, especially by Josh Levine, variations on it go back much further. But, you know, for most of the people who are participating, I think, ALS they know is a disease. They know that it's terrible. They know that it kills you. Um, They know that we don't have a cure. But I wonder if this had started uh, and and was about AIDS. I wonder if it would have caught on because people – do have an image of AIDS in their mind, and and the ravage, the ravages uh, to to the body, and and you know it, just that disease is so much more culturally loaded and fraught for most people that I think that the kind of um, jarring chasm you're talking about, John, might have been more. Um, you know, more in the minds of of people who would have participated and they might have thought, oh, this seems so silly. I'm not going to dump ice water on my head about, you know, for AIDS. That just seems wrong, right? I mean, I think yeah. what you're talking about might have been an issue. And I wonder if the fact that it's a disease most people are not familiar with and that feels a little more abstract, I wonder if that actually contributed to its viral success. That's a great point. I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, so one thing actually I've been thinking about uh, in, after I've watched these videos is that you know that in every boardroom of every disease foundation in America and probably beyond, people are bra- having brainstorming meetings. What is our ice bucket challenge? Um, and you know the success that the ALS uh, Foundation has had is obviously going to breed imitators, and it's going to be interesting to see how other diseases try to replicate that. I mean, this seems to be uh, not a, entirely a one-off thing, and it probably represents a, a change in the landscape of how money is raised for um, this kind of research. And I wonder whether different I wonder whether we'll see a bunch of kind of failed efforts to sort of mimic the ice bucket challenge. As the weather turns cold, will we see some kind of, you know, water hot cocoa co- challenge? <laughs> hot cocoa yeah. challenge to help uh, some other disease. Like, is, I wonder, is this re- replicable? And I wonder if the ways in which uh, other, other uh, foundations come at it will be defined in part by, by the disease that they're trying to increase awareness about or, or try to cure. That strikes me as an inevitably grim future outcome. We were just talking about this actually earlier this week discussing the Emmys and how the official Twitterization of awards shows has ruined award shows. Like Twitter made award shows fun because it was sort of subversive and you could make fun of everything. But now that all the award shows are like, there's an official Samsung selfie and like, look <laughs> at my new Galaxy and you know, 25 hashtags across the screen. It's like... It's like the the um, you know the the joke is getting co opted in a way that is makes it drains it of all humor and fun. And to me, the thing that is most delightful about this, I mean, it's probably the most delightful thing is that I bet the overall month to month graph of charitable giving in America this year will be different than usual. Right? It's usually everybody plunking in in December for their tax breaks, and I'm sure you'll see a spike in August to ALS, but also to other causes as well, and that's to the good. But the second best thing about it is just like what a pure testament to the delightful, ridiculous unpredictability of the viral web. Like how bananas that this thing became as big as it became – inveigled all these like presidents and austere fashion magazine editors and (laughs) random like families gathered in you know Nantucket and wherever the hell else all over the country in one goofy 
well-meaning, kind-spirited endeavor. Like, for however grumpy you want to be about it, like, it's just kind of fun that it took off the way it did. And I can't say I'd be delighted to be tagged. You know, it feels so gimmicky and and random and not like the smart strategic way to give your money away and blah, blah, blah. But I'm mostly, I'm mostly pro, I think. I think it's a force for good in the world that the, the internet can surprise us in this way. Yeah, I think it's not only a force for good, probably overall on balance in terms of what has already happened, but I'm, I'm much more optimistic about the post-Ice Bucket Challenge future for other charitable organizations and other research centers because maybe there is something they can actually learn from this and maybe people will come up with variations that catch on and it won't have the spontaneity and strangeness of this one, but perhaps it will be for something for which awareness is more important or something that um, touches more people. And it's not to say that we shouldn't raise money for ALS, but there are other causes, as we were discussing before, as Felix's piece gets into, that might benefit from this more. And perhaps there will be, you know, variations each summer that, you know, do more to the good. And I think that the other thing we have to hope for, and I, I am sort of confident that this is the case, is that the $10 or $100 that all these people are donating to ALS when they do the Ice Bucket Challenge is not 10 or $100 that they would have donated somewhere else. It's 10 or $100 that would have gone to, you know, downloading a movie or, or done some non-charitable thing. And it's that soft this... Soft surf. Soft surf, exactly, <laughs> it being August. And that this uh, Ice Bucket Challenge will is like creating a whole new generation of philanthropists. You know, that it's like, you know, maybe you've never given any money away. You're a 13-year-old with an Instagram account and you decide to do the Ice Bucket Challenge because Kelly Clark's and did it. And all of a sudden you're like, wow, now I know what it's like to give money to a charity. And like, I, I feel good. Like that, that was the right thing to do. And so, you know, next year you do it again to some other thing that's important to you. And, and if that's the outcome, then that's all. That's great. Who cares? All right. You guys are starry eyed optimists. I, I think those <laughs> arguments are good. I think it is very unlikely that viral lightning will be caught in a bottle again in quite this way. But we shall see. And that's all rude for it to be the case. Uh, how would you guys feel about endorsing? Would you like to endorse? Yeah. Haglin, why don't you go first? Sure. I have a compound endorsement of sorts. It's a cluster <laughs> like a of... a compound fracture? <laughs> hopefully it doesn't feel that way. It's sort of a cluster of cultural items that I think are worth your time. And, and at the center of the cluster is something that David Simon wrote on his, his website shortly after Robin Williams died. It's uh, about the one time they met, which was when uh, Simon was working on Homicide. Uh, fans of the show, this is the NBC show that is very loosely... I would say, inspired by David Simon's first book. Fans of the show will remember when Robin Williams was a guest star on an episode. It was an episode called Bop Gun. It was the first episode of the second season. Uh, he plays uh, a man who's visiting Baltimore with his family, and his wife is, is murdered. And it's a very dark role, a very dark episode. I haven't watched it in a while. I remember him being very good. He was nominated for an Emmy, I believe, though he didn't win. What I didn't realize was that it was the first script for television that David Simon had ever written, huh. that the show was on the verge of cancellation. They had gotten a nine or ten episode first season and gotten four more episodes ordered, basically, according to Simon, because one of the producers had, you know, had drinks and begged, you know, one of the higher ups to let him do this. And according to Simon, Robin Williams basically saved the show, possibly saved his career in television, you know, led him on to do, you know, the wire and everything else that he's he's done since so it's it's fascinating from that perspective it's a, it's an illuminating take on williams who who simon as many people have since he died describes as you know really coming across to him as a deeply sad man the one who made a lot of people happy and who had this this ripple effect uh, so it's it's worth reading 
uh, for that reason, it's worth reading to get a kind of window into television and into Simon's career. Also, if you haven't watched that show or that episode, you should. And then the the final part of the endorsement is uh, whether or not you watch the episode, there's a song in it at the very end uh, called Feels Like Rain, which was written by John Hyatt, and it's performed by Buddy Guy. And it is honestly one of my favorite recordings. I just think it's it's a beautiful, perfect song, and, and people should check it out. Wow. All right. Compounded. <laughs> All right. What do you have, Swans? Uh, I wanted to endorse uh, a fellow podcast, uh, and that podcast is The Champs, which I think has some fans uh, on the Slate staff. I was actually introduced to it uh, by Slate's pop critic Jack Hamilton. Uh, and The Champs is a podcast that's hosted by a pair of stand-up comedians, uh, Moshe Kasher and Neil Brennan. Neil Brennan uh, is perhaps best known as the co-creator of The Chappelle Show. Um, and perhaps uh, not coincidentally, uh, having done that work, he has a fantastic Rolodex. And uh, they get incredibly good um, guests on the, on the podcast, uh, particularly if you are a fan of hip-hop, and, and specifically hip-hop of a certain generation. They've had um, Maceo from De La Soul, MC Search from Third Base, um, a slew of other great uh, rap personalities. They also obviously have a lot of comics on, um, uh, including Chris Rock and Arsenio Hall. Those are two of my favorite episodes. And uh, occasionally they'll have an athlete as well. Uh, Neil Brennan, I think, is friends with uh, Blake Griffin of the uh, L.A. Clippers, and he's been on several times. And those episodes, if you're an NBA fan, are, I think are a must-listen, both because it will make you love Blake Griffin, who's an incredibly funny uh, personality and could probably be a stand-up comic if he wanted to be and maybe should be when he retires, uh, but also because he's, uh, it, it gives you a fantastic window on what it's like to be uh, an NBA all star kind of of his caliber and the podcast is very free-flowing uh it's it's very funny um the conversations often veer off in unexpected directions neil brennan and moshe kasher have a very funny rapport they clearly get on each other's nerves sometimes but also really admire one another um they sometimes will kind of forget they have a guest in the room and just start talking about their own stuff or making jokes uh the best guests kind of fight back and, and get back on the microphone um but the, their best episodes are, are fantastic, and they're typically about 60 minutes. And again, I, I really recommend Arsenio, Chris Rock, and the MC Search episode uh, is, like an, is just a must-listen for sort of fans of late 80s, early 90s hip-hop. It's really good. Ooh, that sounds like a good lesson. I'm going to have to cue that up. Um, I, because I spent our Simpsons segment denigrating the show, will conclude with a Simpsons endorsement, which is my favorite Simpsons song. Uh, which I've seen the episode, but I will confess was taught to me by my husband because he and I sing it to our children all the time, which when you know what the song is and what the lyrics are is macabre and weird. (laughs) But it is the song See My Vest from the episode 2001 Greyhounds. It's a song sung by Mr. Burns, the evil, cackling, unrepentant capitalist. And it turns out dandy, we learn in this song, uh, where he describes the contents of his wardrobe and how um, evilly they have all been sourced from precious <laughs> creatures who perished to adorn him. So anyway, we sing our children the song about uh, ruthless, vain animal murder all the time. And it's just really brilliant and funny. Uh, and that is my endorsement. You should watch the episode of The Simpsons, 2001 Greyhounds, and keep an eye out for the song See My Vest, which has a little bit of a um, Beauty and the Beast homage in it, including a uh, voice cameo from Angela Lansbury which shouldn't be missed. You're not going to sing it for us? No. <laughs> I will not. That's a, that was a privilege reserved for my young children. Fair enough. Um, that is a fantastic song. And or a punishment uh, that they will be talking about with their therapist for years to come. 
All right, guys, thank you so much for sitting in on the show this week. Uh, always a pleasure. Yeah, thanks, Julia. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Please send us your favorite Simpsons episodes and songs and confessions about being Simpsons doubters in particular. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. We were recorded today by Chris Wade. Our intern is Josephine Livingston. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. And our Twitter feed is Slate Cult Fest. For John Swansburg and David Hagland, I'm Julia Turner. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week. Downhill the river Reach to see And in this sticky heat I feel you Open up to me Comes out of nowhere, baby Just like a hurricane And it feels like rain And it feels like rain